This is an autonomous anti-colonial broadcast with unapologetic and claws out analysis towards total liberation. So take your seat by this fire and may the bridges, forts, and churches we burn together light on you. Long ago, an ancient war chief counseled his people in the way they should go. He wisely told them that education was the ladder to success and happiness. Go, my son. Climb that ladder. Go, my son. Go and climb the ladder. Go, my son. Go and earn your feather. Go, my son. Why haven't you learned anything? Schoolshit is a joke. The same people who control the school system control the prison system and the whole social system ever since slavery. Welcome to Indigenous Action Podcast. Today we are going to be jumping into the discussion around education, forced assimilation, particularly boarding and residential schools, and the impacts, the ongoing sort of brutal genocidal legacy that has more recently evoked Indigenous rage, but something that we all recognize is 
something that we have lived with and grown up with all of our lives. And so we're going to be exploring that topic. We are also part of the Channel Zero Network, and we're just going to take a brief moment to listen to a promo. From Embers is a show produced about anarchist ideas and practice across so-called Canada. Every week we spend about an hour going in-depth about ideas, histories, and ongoing struggles that we think are important. We're a part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. You can check it all out at fromembers.libsyn.com. We have finally, once again, our hosts, uh, Bon and Anthony, and we have a great, awesome, uh, consistent guest, recurring guest, uh, Remy from First Seven joining us as well. So we're going to really dig right in. So if folks want to introduce themselves and provide some kind of welcoming, uh, we do also, of course, want to make sure that as we're talking about the subject and it's been requested um, as this information is being discussed and shared, a uh, content warning. So please just be aware of that. Um, you know, it feels weird giving that because, you know, our lives didn't come with a content warning. So, you know, this is something that I've grown up with and I'll share a little bit more about that, I think, when we get into it. But um, I'll turn it over to y'all. Oka, hello everyone. It's so great to be back on the mic. Um, this is Bon here, and I, well, I'm saddened by the topic of our conversation today. I'm excited to provide some um, critical analysis and how we can understand that um, colonial violence and how it still exists today. And yeah, saying with the content warning thing, I'm like, my life is a content warning. Like, don't follow me. Don't listen to me unless you, um, have a strong heart. But, um, that's kind of, uh, what we're going to talk about today. So thanks everyone for being here and joining us. Oh, George, thank you for tuning in everybody. It's great to be back. Um, it's unfortunate it's on such a somber note, but it's a note that unfortunately has been um, riding strong in our communities for a very long time. I, I, it, I'm hard pressed to say in all, in all the years of my life that I've encountered anyone that doesn't know um, the tragedy of the boarding schools and um, residential schools and or more uh less talked about the the idea of broken heart syndrome um and so um let's get into it just wanted to say what's up to everyone my name is remy from the black mesa area so i'm happy to be a part of these conversations and share what i know and learn from everyone else here as well so we are going to get into a bit of the history. Uh, this won't be a full history of boarding in residential schools. There's a lot of books. There's a lot of documentaries already out there, and we'll provide some links and resources in the text uh, providing or following this 
podcast. Um, but we also wanted to sort of go around and get a sense of everybody's personal experiences because, you know, I, I think something that has been shared quite a bit on social media is, is that, every, you know, every Indigenous family has somebody who's gone through this. It's not an anomaly. Um, it's something extraordinarily pervasive. And I do want to just put one more, not necessarily content warning, but more, more sort of like cultural heads up. Um, for Diné people, we don't talk about those who have passed. We don't talk about, you know, deaths and burials lightly. Um, and that context is sometimes uncomfortable to address regarding our cultural um, protocols. And so there are some things that I'll talk about um, and some things I won't talk about in these terms. And some language I'll use very intentionally just because of that. So the sensitivity regarding addressing these issues um, from a traditional cultural standpoint, from being Dine is something that we take very carefully as well. Okay, so just to get into a little bit of um, the history so we have a context um, to start this conversation, I'm going to um, just read an excerpt from the article that was published on the Indigenous Action website called Colonial Education is Still War. Indigenous knowledge and rage is power. So I definitely um, recommend everyone to um, take a look at that. But again, um, we're just going to provide a little bit um, from that article to have a context from for this conversation. So there was uh, 215 remains of Indigenous children <clears throat> that were recently uncovered in a mass grave at a re residential school in so-called Canada. And after that, a collective Indigenous rage um, was sparked to address this brutal, brutal legacy of colonial schools. Um, and the community in so-called Canada had a team use ground penetrating radar to find those burial sites at Kamloops Residential School. And the survey team's um, findings were made public on May 27th. And since then, we know that um, a lot more findings have been made public. So there have been about 1,800 children found um, just in the 11 schools uh, in so-called Canada. And we know that the strategy of the boarding schools and residential schools um, was part of the political and ideological war waged against Indigenous children and families. So there was... Um, a U.S. policy against indigenous peoples, and that shifted from outright annihilation to forced assimilation. And in 1885, Commissioner of Indian Affairs Hiram Price stated, it is cheaper to give them education than to fight them. And then another colonial politician named Carl Schurz uh, clarified the economics behind that strategy, and he said that it would cost a million dollars to kill an Indian in warfare, whereas it only costs $1,200 to school an Indian child for eight years. So as part of that um, shift in strategy from just um, outright annihilation to assimilation, Army General Richard Pratt then created the first government-funded off-reservation boarding school with the mission to kill the Indian, save the man. And so Pratt and other colonizers at that time um, made it really clear that this was a project of civilization. 
stating, transfer the savage born infant to the surroundings of civilization, and he will grow to possess a civilized language and habit. So these white supremacists colonial school systems were designed explicitly and violently to impose um, Christian capitalist values to produce more productive members of the colonial social order. And we know that the violent military and Christian institutions of separation, forced assimilation, and extreme physical as well as sexual violence were very effective. And we know that that strategy was replicated by other colonial forces, obviously including so-called Canada. Yeah, this is an important overview of part of the legacy and something that for a long time, as long as I've known, there's been organizing to address. I think, you know, there's the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Initially, I think it was started as the Boarding School Healing Project. And there's a range of other groups that have advocated for a long time. So it's interesting to see that this moment that was sparked after the Kamloops school uh, findings of this um, mass burial site, this mass grave, um, has sparked this this powerful rage. Um, and so I just wanted to share a little bit of where I come from because, you know, as I mentioned before, I don't know anybody who hasn't been impacted by boarding schools here, you know, residential schools as they're known in so-called Canada. Uh, my father actually went to a boarding school, uh, but only when he was 23. Like he grew up on the res until, uh, you know, it, only speaking to Nepizod, only speak, you know, practicing our traditional cultural ways as folks are aware, you know, I, as I've discussed before, he's a traditional Hatathli or medicine practitioner. And so he remembers, you know, seeing his first white person, you know, in, in traveling around on um, horse and um, in a, a cart or wagon when he was younger. And so when he was 23 years old, he was, you know, compelled, he was coerced to go to um, the Sherman Institute in Riverside, California, but he was already 23. So he was grown. And um, he, uh, when people ask him about it, he says, Oh, they just put me in the knowledge factory just so I could say, learn how to say yes or no. And he was one of those people who was just, you know, forced to have a trade, but he was old enough at that time that he was one of the the people that were there that actually looked after and took care of other younger people. Um, so he helped to organize different clubs and um, stayed in the LA area after his boarding school experience to organize with the indigenous community there. So his story is different. Like when when you um, publicly, um, when I've asked when we've asked him to talk about that before. Um, he just, he doesn't want to talk about it. You know, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing to have a deep conversation with him about it because it was extraordinarily traumatizing, but it also is complicated. Um, this is something that so many folks were forced to endure. And when I was a, when I, so every single one of my aunts and uncles and my relatives all went to boarding school and they all have different stories. Some of them ran away. Um, uh, my partner's uh, father he he ran away like three or four times and has some really powerful, interesting stories about just returning home and that whole process of, you know, his own family putting him back in there and feeling desperate, you know. So there's some really interesting legacy of resistance and care that's part of um, that legacy of boarding schools with survival of those young people. Um, 
my brother and my sister and myself, when we were young, we, I mean, we were so with no running water, no electricity, you know, just living up there. And my family didn't want us to go into boarding schools because that was the only thing it was Rocky Ridge boarding schools down, down the road from where we live. And so, um, they moved off the reservation to Flagstaff. So, you know, Kinsana occupied Flagstaff so we could go to school, not at a boarding school. And that boarding school is still in operation. If you go there, there's a mural there that has, on one side, it has Diné traditionalism. And this is still up, painted on the wall. It has Diné traditionalism that's portrayed as the devil and devil worship. And then it has the Christianization and that whole assimilation message that's still up in this mural at this boarding school. And so, you know, we, we, uh, our, our family decided to spare us from that, but I have peers that are my age and just a little bit older who went to boarding schools. And a lot of folks don't realize that there are still active boarding schools that have many of these same practices. And, and just one more note is that me personally, I don't see a distinction between some of these boarding schools, uh, and current colonial education systems. It's just the only thing different today is that we go willingly, that we send our children willingly. Obviously, we're compelled by the state because you'll face violence if you don't send your kids to school or some kind of economic sanction. But the same assimilation tactics, the same uh, curriculums uh, are employed and the result, the objective is the same. It's just their methodologies have changed. They're less overtly brutal. But the spiritual violence, in my opinion, is still as intense, if not that much more intensified, because there's a reason. There's a reason that young people my age and younger, including myself, have had our language um, as something that has been restricted and something that we don't have that full relationship to because of that intervention. We have a whole generation of our relatives, our parents, that were ashamed to teach and carry on those traditional teachings, our language, our cultures, because of that violence, because of how intensified that and specific that violence was. They didn't what I was told by my uh, relatives is that they didn't want to share some stuff because they didn't want us to go through the same things that they faced. And so, yeah, this is, this is the reality that we still carry with us and something that we are still healing from. Mm -hmm. I mean, gosh, just right down the road here in so-called Flagstaff, there's that Kunklani um, dormitory, which was, is basically just where, indigenous um, children from the res come to stay so that they can go to high school. Um, and <clears throat> I've actually like have had some experiences with the children there and um, it's kind of just like a little encampment. I don't know if it's really even that different than how it used to be. Um, and you know, just like replacing again, like what we were saying in that history with annihilation from just assimilation, it it does make it seem like it's a choice. But when when you've been so violently assimilated to the world we live in for centuries now, is is it can it really be considered a choice when you know the U.S. is like greatest 
ideological export, of course, is white supremacy. And so why, you know, we have these like families, I think of my own family, like my mom, you know, we're border natives and my mom just really wanted to be like a white person. And she went to like Christian schools and, and stuff like that. And um, it's hard to sometimes like, and for people who don't know, she's now missing um, indigenous woman. Um, I really wish I could ask her like, why, um, why did she choose that path? And was it really like a voluntary path? Um, you know, the way that um, these like Christian and colonial institutions make it seem like it's a choice that we have when really it's still the case that if that's not the choice that's made, then it's it's likely that some kind of um, social annihilation is, is going to happen. Um, and in my, you know, in my personal experience, I think it might, it could be like a good opportunity for, um, you know, me to, to speak specifically about the political tactic of family separation. Um, while I don't know my, um, you know, indigenous families history, uh, in regards to residential and, and boarding schools. Um, I do know that uh, for um, border natives, family separation is still um, is still something that's used to, you know, just continue this, like, I guess, colonial assimilation. So uh, for those who don't know, like, my story is that... Um, my mom, like I had just said, kind of wanted to be an American. Um, and so she had me on the U.S. side of the U.S.-Mexico border so I could be an American. Um, and then, you know, like a handful of years go by. She's eventually deported um, and because she was a Mexican citizen. And I'm an American citizen, so they kept me in America where I entered, um, like, the foster care system. And when I read and hear stories about people talking about uh, boarding and residential schools, it's really hard for me not to be like, that still exists. And we know it does because the, the schools literally still exist, but that particular, like, political strategy exists um, through like these borders now, um, where again, like we, you know, like we were just like sharing the history of some in some of those quotes, where it was very clear the the intention was to place these children into schools, and for me, it's a foster care system where we could be like, um, you know, made into like pr- productive members of society and lose um, lose our culture and and lose our history and stuff like that where very much so the experience in in these institutions is still forced assimilation physical abuse sexual abuse um just all these um you know iterations of colonial violence still existing very much in that way and i just thought it was important to um share that in the context of this conversation 
um, so that people understand the various ways that, um, you know, um, our, our genocide is still um, continued today. This topic is a little different um, considering from where my relations come from. We actually almost have the exact opposite relationship to ancestors that than the Diné do. They're present in our everyday life. Um, I won't elaborate on that out of respect to our, to our other people on the podcast, but um, as such, it means that the, um, the deceased amongst our relatives is, is an ever-present topic. And this particular um, issue is an ever-present topic because it goes back to, the, to literally the origin point of colonialism on this continent and actually globally as well, but I won't get into that. Um, it's if the early, in the earliest annals of, of of colonial history, basically the diary, the diaries and journaling that you can find from conquistadors and friars. This tension with with religion and as a force of violence in and of itself. And I mean specifically Christianity and using it as an impositional product via quote-unquote education has always been there it's ever present and it's been grotesquely entwined um with the crawling of colonialism across the continent the present moment is intriguing in the sense that it's unfortunate it has taken so long and something so far away, for lack of a better term, you know, in, 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 in the Vancouver area, in Kamloops, to actually galvanize our own communities to see what's, to take action. This isn't that, the, it isn't that there hasn't been action taken, but I've never seen it quite uh, spark a fire like it has with everyday everyday people and it's part of it is the climate of the politicalization of, of black lives matter right um but when you delve into the idea of the of the boarding school and the residential school in particular and by extension the mission schools and missions um you actually it has so many different aspects to it about the violence of this of, of settler colonialism itself and what we've encountered as we go through it because every facet of it is is about the total destruction of our being from what's being taught to how it's being taught to where it's being taught to the systematic process in which um, families were destroyed the structure of family was destroyed children were kidnapped and the astonishing loss of life and what hasn't been really discussed in in mainstream media the limited mainstream media that is covering the topic is very few people are discussing the idea of what's called broken heart syndrome broken heart syndrome kind of is a coinage it is older probably roughly goes back to the 70s i believe but but it really came into popular coinage more so in the 90s when they were discussing and doing when when there was a rise in research circa 1992, the quincentennial of, of Columbus and 
when at at which time where there was massive indigenous organizing and protests going across the entire continent, north, south, central. Um, and what emerged out of that was not a theory, but something the actual putting into into writing and research what we'd only heard stories of that that were so painful the stories themselves that that i can't tell you how many times i was in conversations where the stories would kind of trickle off they were too painful to discuss and it wasn't about individualized people in some cases it was but what it was is the concept of children in in these circumstances being totally isolated totally alone totally disconnected and bombarded with multiple forms of violence with no forms of recourse including their own language they, they can't even speak to one another in their own language um and what resulted was a an increased mortality rate not just based on circumstances of you know, eight, 18th century or 19th century circumstances that are exposure to disease and, um, and lack of medicine and, and all these other things, but actually the, the concept of emotional death. And I don't mean emotional death as in someone's being numbed. What I mean is that the, someone loses the will to live. And that was became what was referred to as brokenhearted syndrome, where children would pass away. And they would pass on to the ancestors and maybe they had a relative that would find out more often than not, it was a hidden thing and they wouldn't talk about it or attribute it to something else. But those that came back to their families and their homes would pass on the stories about what had occurred. And it was so, so common an occurrence that it would show up in people's writings about what was occurring. It would show up in the stories and recollections that people had. And it's, the, it's a horrifying aspect of the colonial encounter that, that, is, that is such a violent situation that you don't even, that the violence of isolation itself can be made, weaponized by something for the strict purposes of breaking an entire body of people in order to transform them into something that we know now could never happen because white supremacy doesn't allow for anyone but those that it, those that it has an interest in serving to be part of that society. So even there is no killing the native to save the man because we have no potential to ever become quote unquote men or human beings or anything because there's always a um, a way to backtrack and then painted over the top of this is um, the the religious connotations because this was to use modern language it was an outsourced project a project that was outsourced in to various church denominations to certain families that made this into like a racket and then also state institutions and then what becomes even more frightening an extension of this is that it becomes legitimized over time under the auspices of education. So the very models and institutions and buildings and, and, and pedagogy, meaning the science of teaching themselves, which are derived from these periods of time, 
become systematized nationwide are actually what are used everywhere. And so at every level of education, including universities and pre, pre-K, if you will, there is residue of what was being taught then, how it was being taught, why it was being taught, the way it was being taught. And is arguably the way to say it is that the totality of education is harm-inducing because its entire project is based on harm itself as its primary motivational tool, be it justified by religion or justified by the state. I guess in terms of my relationship with boarding schools, um, it was something that my family members, uh, aunts, uncles, mother and everything like that um, were forced to do. And I would hear stories about it all the time. In fact, um, Shimasana, she actually, um, I guess, escaped from all of that. Uh, she was uh, back uh, from all of that. She was hidden when these priests and folks and stuff like that, um, these monsters would come. And uh, she was designated in her family as somebody that was supposed to, that knew all of the songs, the ceremonies, things like that. And so she was kept from that. And I think that was um, probably a good thing for us. But uh, our family didn't escape that. In fact, um, I would hear these horror stories from various members of my family. And in terms of the what was brought up prior to uh, the family separation, that's key. You know, I think the legacies, the bloody legacies, uh, the traumatic legacies of these boarding schools echoes far beyond just those generations. Uh, I think that um, what happened there, and especially in these schools and stuff like that, um was designed with the strict intent to you know kill all of our people and in various forms and fashions and i think that where i can speak from is that um you know a lot of that trauma that we've been talking about uh, a lot of that is sexual trauma too and so uh, being a victim and a survivor myself from um, those legacies that have been unfortunately passed on to me. Um, so I think it's really important that we make these connections with, um, I guess, missing and murdered indigenous relatives, because a lot of, I think, speaking from a personal standpoint, uh, the escape, the um, the numbness that I guess you want to feel um, when these thoughts or emo- whatever they be, emotions or whatever, uh, come up. You know, you, you want to escape that. You know, it's not something that you really want to like stay focused on for too long. And I think that. Uh, a part of missing and murdered indigenous relatives. I think there's a part of that that is dedicated to these residential schools, these boarding schools, these Catholic schools. Um, 
these schools that were intent upon killing us in various ways. And so um, within these communities, we have folks that have, you know, suffered that. Sometimes they replicate those things too. And speaking as a survivor, you know, it's really hard to come back from some of these uh, experiences. So I can understand people wanting to escape and things like that. People wanting to get away from, you know, the very culture or whatever it is, because I know that like, you know, for me as a person that, you know, didn't, um, would see some of these people, you know, taking, partaking in, uh, ceremony. And we know these things about some of these folks that perpetuate these things in our own community. Um, it's really hard to engage in that type of healing that is ceremony when you have people that partake in these that are perpetuating some of these things. So uh, it's a long journey, I think, for a lot of folks, but it isn't just what happened you know, to one, two, three generations before. It's the legacy that goes on, that echoes through the generations that come afterwards. And so, um, you know, there's different parts of trauma that I think all lead to people wanting to escape, you know, leave the res, um, you know, not feel these things. And sometimes people look into other things, substances to, you know, uh, facilitate that and these are all personal experiences too so um you know it's it's a hard road i think that a lot of people don't really understand the echoes and how this reverberates um throughout generations and so um i think that you know when we talk about organizing community when we talk about um you know organizing in general how how do we organize community or larger scale if we don't have some of these elements, you know, taken care of within our own community? You know, these people that are still part of these communities that perpetuate it, whether it be an institution like um, a boarding school, uh, you know, a, a church that's inside of a native community. So... I go back to that quote that says that um, the child that, what is it, is not welcome or embraced by the community. They will warm themselves in the ashes of it. Um, I think that, you know, when you see these fires, uh, that's part of it. Um, so I think that, you know, just when you look at destroying some of these things or these destroyed institutions, um, you know, for some of us, you know, we'll warm our hands on that for sure. Um, and, uh, those that try to uplift that or those that try to, um, validate those things or those that maybe try and perpetuate some of those, you know, behaviors that came from that, because these things are all genocidal, you know, 
When Columbus landed, first thing he did, separate the children from the adults. You know, some of them were forced to work, mine. Uh, the others were sex slaves. And so these are our first contacts with European culture. And boarding schools are colonial. These are all colonial viruses. These are all colonial plagues. And, you know, how, how do we stop that virus in the sense of what we're dealing with today? You know, and I think that if we're not making these connections, then we're really doing a disservice to a lot of the survivors or those that can't speak. You know, um, maybe the trauma is too great. You know, I've been in all these circles and, you know, trying to find connection or something that resonates, you know, is hard. You know, climbing out of that, you know, is also pretty hard. But I think that, you know, these are necessary in terms of like what we have to eradicate from our lands. Um, all these institutions, whether they be, you know, churches, whether they be governments, whether they be nonprofits, whatever they are, these things are all parasitic. And you know, I think that um, that is my personal. I guess, uh, relationship to boarding schools and residential schools, things like that. And <clears throat> I think that, you know, some of these folks that are a part of that, you know, I just don't really understand history. But I think that platforms, uh, books, these are all great uh ways to understand and learn and educate ourselves so uh, I, I guess i really didn't expect to go as far into this but i wanted to make some connections when we're talking about uh boarding schools um i i think that the sexual violence portion of that conversation isn't talked about enough and i think it resonates throughout movements like you know missing and murdered indigenous relatives things like that that's a piece of it because whether they whether or not they were part of the uh, boarding school, they probably felt the effects from it, whether that be from, you know, a relative or a family friend or any of these things. So I wanted to make that connection, especially for those that are on the reservation that may have, you know, experienced something similar. Because I think that you know, when we talk about um, cleaning up the res and doing right by our land and things like that. Cleaning up the res should also include like eradicating these colonial entities. Cleaning up the res looks like, you know, taking out these predators and these pedophiles, things like that. That should also be a part of all of that. And so that is, I guess, my little take on that, my little piece, but uh, I just wanted to, I guess share that in along uh, along with y'all. Thanks, Remy. I was gonna yeah, I was gonna follow up um, and just say that I appreciate the emphasis on the connection between the gender based violence um, because absolutely these schools were absolutely the I would consider the birthplace for 
um, just the level of sexual violence that exists in our um, indigenous communities um, today absolutely stems from the experiences of these residential and, and boarding schools. And I also wanted to to just kind of add to um, the conversation around gender-based violence, the, like just the complete like annihilation of um, queerness that um, that was like um, you know part of this assimilation and that happening in <clears throat> in the schools too. The connection between uh, residential schools and gender-based violence and queer phobia is all so relevant to how uh, a queer indigenous person might operate in the world today. And it's really fucking scary. I wanted to, um, you know, thank you, Remy, for sharing and just opening up that way. It's really, I think, something that in this issue particularly when we talk about intergenerational tra trauma, this is what we mean, you know, and, and we don't have a lot of spaces that provide uh, the opportunity for us to address these issues. And I think that that's why there's such a powerful moment that has been opened up to have these discussions and to have extended talking circles in some ways. And it's interesting how that is overflowing on social media because of these platforms for folks to have that visibility and to be affirmed, to be validated and understood and find that solidarity and connection. I think part of the question that you raised is very clear and necessary, you know, because we're talking about these, the, the brutal horrors of assimilation through forced education and the violence that has come along with that genocidal legacy so the question we have is, you know, how can we face how its ongoing legacy continues to fulfill its vicious objectives and stop that and heal from that? Um, and to me, that's where, as you brought up, um, and, and for the listeners who aren't aware, Remy's talking about the churches that are burning in so-called Canada. So far, as far as the, the reports that I've seen, there's been about 48 Christian churches in so-called Canada that have either been burned down or vandalized. Um, and, you know, there's there's not a clear link as far as the arsons are concerned to the the residential school issues, but because um, there, there's no manifestos or no notes, but there is a clear correlation to the time and the accountability that the, the culpability that the church has, the blood on the church's hands. So, you know, the vandalization that people are saying is happening, what we're seeing is red hands and, you know, statements about um, the brutal legacy and the responsibility, the blood on the hands that the church has had. And so, to me, this is where, you know, I, I am fascinated with this power of indigenous rage uh, and how it is being expressed in terms of vengeance, not just by radical folks or, you know, extreme folks, but people who have survived this and who recognize that, you know, when we hear about these calls for um, 
acknowledge, land acknowledge, more acknowledgements of this suffering, right, from settlers. We, we want settlers to see us, to understand how valid our, um, you know, brutal experiences at their hands. Like, is that enough? Um, we want, you know, people are calling for apologies by these institutions. Is that enough? Um, people are, I hear people also calling to honor treaties, which is a bit absurd because, you know, if you actually read the mm. Dinette Treaty of 1868, it actually has compulsory education. <laughs> it actually paved the way for further brutal, um, forced uh, colonial education. You know, the honoring the treaties isn't something that we should be considering if we're actually addressing this legacy. Um, you know, people are calling for better history lessons or for reconciliation. And I think that, you know, there have been actually some powerful pushbacks by some groups organizing in so-called Canada. Um, there, there was a group that was uh, called the Truth Commission in, in, into Genocide in Canada, so-called Canada, where they responded after, I think in 2007, after decades of advocacy for reparations, um, there was actually a settlement agreed upon in the largest class action uh, settlement. Um, and that was, uh, I think it included a $10,000 common experience payment to approximately 90,000 people who survived residential schools with an additional $3,000 for every year that they were held at the schools. So there was approximately $2 million that was advocated for funding for healing and educational programs. So that was part of the answer that um, the colonial state of Can so-called Canada had to reconcile for reparations this issue. And so there was a group actually called the Truth Commission into Genocide in Canada, which um, charged that residential schools were responsible for the deaths and disappearances of thousands of Indigenous people. And they rejected that deal by saying, quote, this bribe and legal gagging is being presented as a final resolution of the claims of residential school survivors, as if such unspeakable crimes as mass sterilizations, gang rape, ritualistic torture and murder are resolvable or uh, by or reducible to an issue of money. And so I think that that was a powerful rejection of those terms uh, and something that, again, is part of that question of so so yes, what does justice look like? Um, what you know in this moment, you know, indigenous vengeance in terms of striking at these churches, which are part of the root of this brutality, and especially as as Anthony has contextualized. Um, I, I like that you hit on the, this idea of fury because I think that that's actually one of the. It, it's kind of awkward how we've gotten to this point in terms uh, of the discussion of, of the subject, not just because it is, it isn't just the boarding schools as phenomena. It's it and what everything else that encompasses it coming into being. Right. So like, for example, it, once you delve into it, I believe that at the, at the center of the, there's a tension at the center of all of this, that isn't just about the victim, quote unquote, but not that I want to decenter victims. I'm just saying that, at the center of it is there's those of us that are, that may pursue healing. There are those of us that believe that healing and injustice can never happen. And then there are those of us that want to embrace a lane of destroy the institution of destruction. You know, like we, we believe that, you know, the Indian wars never ended and, and 
arguably that's true because to uh, to just think of the of these residential schools as like a a follied educational project full of toxic people is to misunderstand and decontextualize it from how they initially emerged all of them emerged as a weapon every single one of them and directly connected to the to the outcomes of warfare it wasn't it wasn't that's not a nebulous thing that's not a guess that's not an opinion it's a fact every single one of them are a result of that and what's come over time is is just seen as you know with by the mainstream at best as an out of control violent institution you know like that that was the bad priest or the bad teacher or the abuser or whatever as a, and there's no responsibility and is there a responsibility to be taken for that and what it produces, be it, be it those that are actually everyone that has been harmed by it in our communities and either as either perpetuators of harm themselves or self-harm um, or, or those that actually find themselves fi- needing to find the tools in other ways to fight back and finding, you know, finding ways to do that. Um, and, and it's a, my concern and the reason I bring that up is I think the fury and the fire, and I don't, I don't spit pick those two things, you know, uh, those two terms up lightly. I think the fury and the fire are intimately connected and should be, and also should be fueled. Um, because what we have seen in, in this, this particular, we're in a delicate moment where one acknowledgement is occurring, this idea where, that this institution is being seen as the as the house of horrors and charnel house that it really is, as well as we are we are I don't you don't even like this term, but kind of we're reclaiming our ancestors as well and and trying to put them to rest in a traditional way, in some kind of form of closure of a type. But beyond that, on the on the periphery and already Clee discussed it a little bit, is this idea of truth and reconciliation. What's misunderstood and what I don't like about the way certain people approach it is truth and reconciliation has never been the beginning point. It's been the after point that has been utilized to pacify movements. It has never been utilized actually as a liberatory project. It's been utilized in order to undermine the liberatory project and to kind of make sure and soft pedal colonialism and the things as they are the status quo if you will in as kind of um well see now we've seen it we've acknowledged it and we hear you and you hear us and therefore it's all good and it isn't all good because the power relation doesn't change the ongoing violence hasn't changed and this is a settler project that is like i said ongoing and is deeply multifaceted it is not as simple as a school or a particular student it is it goes well beyond into everything that it represents the impulse to do it the impulse that still currently exists it's it's not like the the impulse for assimilation that for example targets quote-unquote immigrants isn't the same impulse that is trying to remove the savage and to create the man. It's the exact same impulse. This, this idea of cultural supremacy uh, is imposed on other people. My concern then becomes if what occurs when, when, when all of the, um, 
I don't want to I don't want to say triggers, but like signifiers, if you will, the the maneuvering space for action is either not direct action or is deviating there therefrom away from direct action. And and the reason I bring that up and and I'd say it's delicate is because in the 90s and actually it really kind of started in the 80s and and out of the red power movement, what came out of the red power movement and was actually part of it almost at the beginning was um, elements of kind of group therapy around substance abuse and stuff like that. As we got into the late 80s and early 90s and there was an emergence of spaces, what we would call today, quote unquote, safe spaces, in which indigenous people could tell their story as related to residential schools and boarding schools, we discovered that, and I speak the we as in the movement, quote unquote, discovered that trauma had to be tended to as well. In other words, militancy wasn't just enough. And then attached to that came all the ancillary things of undealt with trauma, intergenerational trauma, be it the violence, the self-violence or addiction and a wide variety of things that were connected to it. And then, and that still isn't tending to the schools itself. In a, in a weird way, a lot of this, the, the problems with the school were a result of just capitalism, making it so that, this, that they were either unfunded, defunded, but I can't say it was a result of a movement that actually hasn't occurred. And so that's why I bring that up is that on the one hand, there is the, the, the population of our, of our relatives that this is part of their lived experience and has um, needs tending to. And then the other part is the institution and the institutional memory and how this connects to colonialism that also should be combated against. So one is, is a front line and the other is kind of at home. And so I, my, my big concern, I feel like I'm repeating myself, is how the two of them get balanced as, this, as the issue itself or the consciousness around the issue moves forward and what those doing the work are doing as well. Oh, and being concerned that it instead gets pacified or used into a pacification project. Well, and, and this is sort of what I was bringing up um, a moment ago. Uh, and I think that it's exemplified through what um, Department of Interior Secretary Deb Haaland announced um, uh, in June, which was a federal Indian boarding school initiative. The Department of Interior um, basically said that it's going to do an investigation in, into um, uh, boarding schools with the primary goal of the investigation, identifying boarding school facilities and sites, location of uh, known and possible student burial sites uh, located at or near school facilities and the identities and tribal official, fish affiliations of children interred at such locations. And so Halland actually, this is a quote, stated, the Interior Department will address the intergenerational impact of Indian boarding schools to shed light on the unspoken traumas of the past, no matter how hard it will be. Uh, I know that this process will be long and difficult. I know that this process will be painful. It won't undo the heartbreak and loss we feel, but only by acknowledging the past uh, can we work towards a future that we're all proud to embrace. And so I want to state that a lot of Indigenous 
folks, from what I saw, felt validated, particularly larger organizations like NCAI and a range of others, um, saw this as a marker for justice towards addressing this issue, which I think is absurd. I, I think really it's the federal government, you know, this colonial occupying system doing damage control. Um, and it's not like we don't know, right? I mean, just up the road, Bon, bon mentioned um, a local a dormitory here in occupied Kinthana, but I mean, literally 40 minutes, 45 minutes away in Loop, Arizona, which Loop is named after a, a former BIA official. Um, there was a, a boarding school that was started in the 1920s um, and it had 500 students. It it closed in 1942, but once it, um, it was re- renovated and reopened um, in 1943, it became a Japanese internment camp. And so this is just 45 minutes from here. You know, this is part of that legacy. We know, we know this, you know, we know where these sites are. We know what the impacts are, but you know, what is the federal government going to do in these terms, especially when its interests are still and being still in and being communicated through this genocidal assimilation process. Um, and this is part of what I contend with and what we, I think, or what we, we all should contend with on some levels is not just accepting this recognition, this acknowledgement, but going deeper and looking at ways that we can, um, uh, I think, and this is, gets into a, an analysis that I think is important that you brought up, Remy, and I'd like to hear your thoughts more, um, is, is that at some point, when we start exploring the missing and murdered indigenous women, uh, girls, trans and two spirit relatives and missing indigenous relatives, we start actually having to implicate the U S as a, uh, as a whole and its genocidal policies and how that process is still going on. So that, you know, what we're looking at is a substantial generation and ongoing impacts to those um, generations that have faced the cascading violence of colonialism uh, to, to this day. And so, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, when I, when I see things like, you know, the, the, the federal government through this native um, spokesperson now saying that they're going to investigate this issue, it's, it's not enough to have an investigation. We know what happened. What's going to actually bring justice? Nothing's going to bring our relatives back. But when is the, the war against indigenous children and indigenous future going to end? And the U.S. isn't going to end that war. Um, I think that what was brought up earlier was uh, how do we heal? How do we you know, move forward? How do we address these things? And <clears throat> speaking from our personal standpoint uh, today, the thing that has helped me throughout all of this in terms of like having to, you know, as a survivor, all these, you know, victim, um, the thing that has always brought me through is art. Um, being able to turn that pain into art, being able to focus it and at times utilize those emotions of rage and vengeance and retribution being able to embody that but to focus it through a medium like art in somehow i think has really for me um developed 
as uh, helped me develop as an artist. It, the the ability to turn pain into art that alchemist process I think has really helped me um, along the way. And I know that we have a lot of folks that are out there that are hurting and things like this. And a lot of what our culture was beat out of us, you know, killed out of us. Uh, A lot of that had to do with art. Um, You know, how do we make our arrows prettier? You know, how do we make our weapons of war prettier? And that's kind of where my journey has been in terms of like, speaking to this narrative, these monsters, if you will, through a colonial, you know, looking at this as through a colonial lens. And so just recently um, I've been putting up some street art over in the Twin Arrows area uh, outside of Flagstaff on old Route 66. And there's a lot of huge cylinders there that were, you know, once, you know, gas tanks or water tanks, whatever. Um, these are big cylinders, 20 and 30 feet high. And, you know, I turned one of them into a soup can um, that took, uh, you know, Campbell's and everything like that and flipped that whole shit around. You know, it's anti-colonial messaging that has our resistance on there. Um, and really brought it back to... Uh, how I heal as a person, you know, these are messages that for those that don't know uh, on the front lines of during the George Floyd protests and everything, people wouldn't use bricks or anything like that when they would come to protests and stuff like that, when they'd battle cops, because that would be too easy to spot. And so what folks used to do was go to the store and just buy up a shit ton of soup cans. Now, soup cans, you know, if you get stopped with them, it's like, oh, why do you have 40 soup cans? People would say, oh, that's for my family. You know, like, oh, why do you need 40 of them? You know? But folks would take these into um, protests and they would somehow find their way, you know, against a, a cop's helmet, you know, a riot shield, whatever it is. Uh, but folks were using whatever they had on hand. And so taking what we're seeing in the streets, um, having lived that personally in terms of like standing rock and whatnot, uh, being able to uh, put a twist on these things, uh, what we see on the reservation, taking something, turning it into something else, uh, I think is really where I find, you know, health or the help I need and the healing I require. And so, you know, the other one's a 30 foot spray can that, you know, in Denebazad translates and Klee, you could probably speak to this too. Um, it translates to we live. And so taking all of the old Krylon cans and replacing them with our sacred colors, you know, putting the labels on there that say contents under pressure, you know, colonially pressurized, um, all these different things, turning all these uh, pain, if you will, these monsters into something else. And so when we launch these missiles at the state and institutions, you know, not much has changed in terms of the flaming arrows that we used to shoot over fort walls. Um, the soldiers are still there, but now they're police. 
these institutions, you know, whether they be churches, nonprofits, colon- they're all colonial forts. And so I think that warming our hands upon these structures uh, as they're lit all over the place, I think is for me also healing in that way and diving into our culture and trying to make these connections, you know, those installations are dedicated to the actual people of Palestine, the actual people who are residential and boarding school survivors. You know, I wrote it on, that's who this is for. This is what this speaks to in terms of when I express myself as an artist, you know, having gone through all that. And so, you know, there's other people that, you know, write there too. It's not just me that's doing stuff there. There's stories that are there. You know, people use art as a medium. I met other folks that uh, use this medium because, you know, their family members aren't doing well mentally. Their best friend is struggling with addiction issues. And so being able to come to these spaces and turn this pain into art, I think, is really important. Um, and I think that's why, like, you know, stories like where the wild things are, is, that's about an alchemical process, you know, turning pain into something beautiful, turning pain into art. And so um, having read that a long time ago and then making that connections, these are all things that, like, help me along the way as uh, healing, partaking in ceremony. Um, and so I just wanted to add that in terms of the part where you had asked prior to about how we heal in that way. That's just my personal, um, I guess, journey and story that I'll add to that. I feel like for me, any kind of like creativity that I had was just completely um, vanished having experienced the foster care system. It just totally stripped me of like that ability to like think or be creative in that way. Um, But I think for me, for finding healing is just like connecting with relatives um, and through like um, primarily a lot through um, unsheltered relative support I sometimes like tell my friends and and I mean this seriously is that the people that I can relate to the most in this world are um, people who share people on the streets who share um, their stories with me Um, And it's just so, um, I guess, humbling to see that I somehow ended up on, like, the stable path that I'm on. Um, But when you hear, you know, you hear these stories and you see exactly how this, like, legacy of colonial violence um, has stolen the homes of so many people who never should have been unsheltered um it's like that weird like sick way of healing i guess if you will (laughs) it's like hmm connecting to other people's like um stories that are really relatable but also like traumatic 
uh, I think can be a source of healing. And it kind of makes me wonder, and I wonder what other people think about this, but, um, you know, um, just being in like organizing spaces in just the last couple of years, I think it's always been a challenge for us to have um, indigenous people who are really dedicated um, and consistently dedicated to abolishing, you know, um, colonialism in all the different ways that we can because of how hard it is to confront like our own experiences with it and our own stories and um, like, and and then it, I kind of find myself being really frustrated um, that people um, don't show up. I guess if you if if you will, and um, it's like it's kind of like going back to what Anthony was saying is like, where do we? How do we find that space between healing and being and staying active? Um, it's just something that's been on my mind a lot lately, uh, especially as like. Um, the stories of the residential and boarding schools have come out. Uh, I think we all have a lot to celebrate in seeing those fucking churches burning down. Um, but it still, it still doesn't, um, I guess, like satisfy for me on, in an on the ground and community level, um, like why more people, uh, I guess aren't showing up um and maybe that's not like necessarily the most invitational tone to have regarding this conversation but it is just hard not to get kind of frustrated um when you know when you see people who are just kind of like living in everyday life and like going to work and that's kind you know and then they go home and then they just do that day in and day out because that is like maybe the only thing that they can do uh, which is very like sad and obviously like why they're like it's such a struggle I think to find a solid crew um, of like indigenous uh, people doing direct action stuff so that I feel like a little bit of a tangent from the residential boarding school uh, conversation but it's just like kind of like how do we find I just it makes me wonder like and it makes me want to ask the question how do we find that um, I guess balance between like healing joy pleasure action ferocity anger etc etc I see those, uh, everything that you had said, uh, all encompassed in art. And I think that who's to say that those burning churches aren't art, you know, for somebody else in terms of how they express themselves. So special shout out to those artists out there. Um, big ups. You guys are really inspiring. There's elements of catharsis, I think, what we're talking about. Um, and I, I, I take issue with, um, your sort of sentiment regarding twisted healing, because we're we're talking about survival and we're talking about fragmented, fractured, intervened, damaged 
ways of healing, like our, our traditional cultural uh, expression, our ceremonies, our prayers. Um, you know, we have to also understand that before colonialism, there's no dichotomy between art and our lives, our existence. And so the way we express ourselves, what brings us pleasure, what brings us joy, this is part of our existence that we need to reconnect and heal and understand as part of our natural expression and also understand the ways that it has been disrupted, interrupted, intervened with, attacked on a continual basis right now. Like our, you know, we, we need to stop imagining colonial futures. And that's what boarding schools have done to us is that it has stripped away our ability to imagine who, even who we are and dream in our own prayers with you know our uh, our ancestors and to me this is part of that challenge i i it's interesting to see that the way that some folks have reacted like especially the tribal councils no surprise and politicians they're denouncing the burning of churches right um well we celebrate those as exemplary cathartic acts also, the question I have is, what did you think decolonization would look like? You know, a lot of people are trying to, you know, out there denuding decolonization of its radical proposition, which is to liberate indigenous lives, lands, and futures, and our past. So we have to understand that healing is, this is what healing looks like, that we have to end that which is abusing us, which is causing us harm to stop and intervene in that so we can make that space to heal. And that's where the, the dis- discussion about ashes, right? And, and um, what we can build, what can be um, come from that as well. Uh, and to me, it's, it's also about not just exploring the traumas of our past and understanding them. As I've mentioned, we're going to share some resources and books, and, and, and there are resources out there for um, folks who have been studying and organizing to heal. I think, Anthony, you brought this up, and I, I, I know you brought it up. You're, you're, you're referring to um, broken heart syndrome. Broken heart syndrome, yeah. Um, you know, to address that as a diagnosis, but also look at then what the prescription is, right? And it's going to be contextual. But we can also understand that that part of that con- prescription is just what we're talking about and expressed and explored in many different ways for healing. And part of that is cathartic action. Part of that is cathartic art and all of those things that either give us pleasure or help us transform the immense amount of suffering. And so the the point I wanted to get to is not just exploring and understanding um, the traumas of the past, to, to, you know, because I mean, I think there's a, a lot of academics that are, you know, part of this industry, this colonial um, uh, thought industry that is rooted in colonial ideology that are trying to decolonize those institutions, um, but ultimately are just sort of reinforcing the colonial sort of knowledge um, systems. Um, but what I think is important to reconnect to is those stories and histories of resistance, um, the ways that indigenous children resisted and rejected settler colonial civilization that was being imposed through these boarding and residential schools, the way that they ran away and resisted the authoritarianism, the economic and social you know, stability that we are so willing to participate in right now. Um, you know, these powerful, amazing stories, just like your, your Masana Remy of 
you know, her being hidden out and, and um, protected so she can maintain those ceremonies and those prayers. Um, you know, I think Rabbit Proof Fence is a powerful um, uh, narrative film that was produced in uh, so-called Australia, um, Aboriginal folks who um, resisted boarding schools, because this is a, a global, as Anthony mentioned, um, as a global issue, a strategy that was implemented by colonizers on a global level. Um, you know, the stories of the Hopi um, who resisted uh, sending their children to boarding school. And so they were imprisoned at Alcatraz, you know, uh, and they were, they were held there, um, for years because they refused to capitulate to the colonial demand of subjecting their future to forced assimilation. Um, you know, because these, these boarding schools have forced us to abandon our cultures, our language and our names, our ceremonies, our hair, even, you know, I, 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 when I grew up, my mom and dad said, don't never cut your hair. Don't cut, don't, don't tell anybody you should cut your hair. Don't have them cut your hair. You know, that was a principle stand of them breaking that part of that cycle. And it was hard because the social pressure, right? Just, just of that simple act of trying to maintain your hair traditionally in a CEO. Uh, I was attacked for every, almost every day, you know, with fights in the school playgrounds. <laughs> um, and so, the, the 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 strategy of compulsory colonial education was to destroy that which makes us who we are. Um, so that was to break the connection that we have to the land, to the spirit, and our ancestors. So it's our responsibility, and I think we all know this, to radically reconnect. And I think this idea of radical reconnection uh, is really important. Um, you know, and, and by design, we cannot reconnect through the colonizers ballot box political offices corporate jobs academic degrees or nonprofit activism as you mentioned you know um, Remy like that reconnection isn't going to be handed down by Deb Haaland in investigation <laughs> you know that's just sort of going to provide a, a whitewashed or redwashed review of colonial violence and result in some kind of apology or what we're seeing some limited repar- reparations or payouts or buy-offs that have happened in so-called Canada. Um, but if, if we understand that colonization means war, that, that also means that there's nothing to negotiate in the fight for an indigenous future. Um, and as we've mentioned before, anti-colonial struggle means that in our fighting back, uh, we are also healing. Um, and to me, that's a celebration and honoring of indigenous knowledge and rage because indigenous knowledge was what was attacked at these boarding schools at these residential schools. And so the indigenous rage is bringing that back um, and as part of that reconnection. So when we, when we re- reject these ideas and these values that were beaten into us and restore that was w- what was beaten out and we reject and destroy the ideas and institutions that maintain settler domination uh, and, and, and control, and when we rebuild that mutuality that's based on cultural knowledge and ways of living, that's radical reconnection. And we can do this through ceremony, through art, like you're talking about. We can do it through renaming, through language immersion. We can do it through our hair, right? We can do it through foods and medicines, through songs and games. We can do it through shutting down pipelines and you know fucking up corporate offices. We can do it through protecting sacred places, through disruption, intervening and attacking 
really that which destroys us. And I think that that's what's powerful. It's like what's not being talked about in terms of these churches burning is that our sacred places are constantly being burnt down, destroyed, and raised to the ground. So, for these colonizers to react and say this is a hate crime, no, this is not a hate crime. This is justice. This is what decolonization actually looks like. So, you know, for me, it's, that's why I really connect and resonate with our, our militant anti-colonial relations in so-called Canada when they say that reconciliation is dead. They say that, you know, awareness of these issues is not the problem, that they want vengeance. That's powerful. That's really powerful. You know, beyond these cries for justice, you know, it's, and it's up to us to determine what justice is, Right. When we have a generation of survivors, generations of survivors, generations of people who have been systematically attacked, that our minds, our spirits, our imaginations, our dreams, our future has been systematically attacked. And so that's why, you know, for me, you know, I dream of indigenous futures rising from the ashes of all these colonial institutions, including these churches, because we dream of our ancestors avenged. And to me, that's justice. That's healing. I don't think that, like, I just want to kind of revisit what I was saying before, because I don't think that for some people, they're going to, like, interpret um, healing in that way. Because you can't, like, I'm, I'm imagining someone, like, you know, um, having a panic attack. And that, like, in the moment of having, having a panic attack, going to, like, go spray paint something on, like, a billboard isn't going to, like, address the issue of having um, panic attacks, <laughs> if that makes sense. I was, I, I was, I was speaking in, a, in like, healing it as... Um, Healing as a mechanism to, like, just survive a fucking day without crying, without having a panic attack, um, being able to eat, being able to shower, being able to get out of the fucking bed. Um, you know, like, they're, like, some of our histories and our stories are, and our lived experience are so debilitating that... Like, the idea of, like, um, you know, um, I, I, what I imagine connecting to, like, you know, mutual aid network or people doing anti-repression work or whatever is just, like, unfathomable because they just can't get through even a fucking day. And so... Like, I just, I don't want to come to the conversation about healing in a way that is, like, um, I guess, ableist, um, or, um, you know, defines what healing might be for other people either. Yeah, and I was just taking issue with this sort of notion of twisted healing and, and just sort of recognizing that in survival, like, healing is going to look different in different ways, in different terms and contexts. Like, you know, for a Danette, 
from a Danette traditionalist perspective to address a panic attack, it wouldn't be to just go out and do something rash or, you know, something cathartic on that level or something exciting, I should say, with smashy smashy or whatever property re- redecoration. <laughs> the first thing that, you know, my, my father has taught me would be to, and my, my medicine practitioners and elders that I've worked with, would be to um, sit with our tobacco you know, to process mm-hmm. what, okay, what is the root cause of this and release that? So if we're panicking, we have like specific ceremonial or prayerful tools or medicines that we use yeah. to to ground ourselves in, you know, our existence with our cosmology and sort of explore that harmony. And then to me, like, this is where like the liberals would stop there. And to me, I'm just like, okay, well, part of what we carry with us, you know, on our on our right hand is our hojonje, our blessing way. On our left hand is our anaje, um, our our enemy or protection way. So I would say, okay, now what can I do to make sure that that what is harming uh, harming me is going to stop or end, or something that can help send a message and communicate that this is, um, you know, uh, a, a change that needs to happen in this world. And so um, I, I think it's it's a cultural context that should be accessible Mm -hmm. and it is it's different for different peoples as well so and i know that there's a lot of folks who have been broken and separated from that but i think that's why in these conversations we can find and explore and you know see what will work for us and share what will work Mm -hmm. for us on meaningful basis as well like not some fucking uh, you know new new age co-optation and appropriation you know (laughs) that we're seeing out there with people you know randomly burning sage but you know well, I think one of the problems is that um, it, it's hard from where we're at to see how colonized we are. And admittedly, coloni- colonization is not a total process. It's even if even even if it's like the most developed colony ever, it's still incomplete. It is a, it is a process in doing in being, if you will. And part of the, part, the reason I bring that up is one of the one of the one of the main impulses behind this entire settler project was to inculcate within us our a poison that is an intergenerational poison, and it's a go functions in a wide variety of ways. Um, and so, like one of them, one of the ones that, for example, is this idea, for example, the, the very notion that we're alone in this struggle is actually something that many of us are born into from the beginning. You're, you're, whereas if we actually look at our traditions and historically, that isn't act at all how we perceive the world. We were always in it together. It was never in it like me by myself, me by myself with my pain. And then the other thing was like the entire crab philosophy wasn't part of what we were doing. We weren't tearing one another down in order to elevate the self. That doesn't mean we were perfect. There there's, there's always an asshole to be found somewhere, you know, like that doesn't, that doesn't change, but at, at a mass cultural level, we were never, um, there is so many values and negative bits of toxic poison have been put into us that we don't question in our own self. And it's not as easy as like, uh, just decolonize your mind or, you know, your diet or whatever. There's some, you know, nonsensical one-off thing that puts all the responsibility on one person. Because there's certain things you can never see because they've been so normalized 
because of colonialism. But the difference is, is and I found this is the, the main tool I use. I mean, I've, I I totally relate to Remy too. Like, um, like I in fact, Clee and I recently, I think it was maybe a month or two ago, had the I had the conversation with him about the very idea that as as indigenous peoples, if there wasn't colonialism, one of the main things that was the center of our very being was creation. We were constantly creating because capitalism wasn't there, right? That doesn't mean conflict and competition wasn't there. Those things were there too. But the majority of our day wasn't all of the stresses and pressures that we have put upon us in modern society that are all artificial for the most part, artificial scarcity, artificial poverty, all of these things that are being imposed upon people by by capitalism and colonialism itself. So if we go back and we actually look at that mindset, it's actually a very liberating thing. I mean, if I think about all the things that I wouldn't be thinking about, it's an astoundingly um, liberated life, but it's also an escape for a wide variety of things. Like, so for example, I would say like for me in my younger years, music in particular was somewhat cathartic. I would say more, it was a release valve and, and not only was it a, a release valve, it definitely kept me, kept me, kept me sane. But the, but does that mean being sane is healthy? <laughs> when, when, uh, when, cause trust me, 99.9% .9 of the music I played and wrote was angry as fuck. <laughs> so it's not like it was, it was a, um, I, I wasn't singing about wine and roses, you know, <laughs> um, that, you know, that's neither here nor there. But the point being this is that what I what I kind of came to the solution of is trying to flip things that we take for granted on their head to look at them differently. So, for example, one of the emphasis emphases that we have now is alongside intergenerational trauma, we also have intergenerational struggle. And it's a crucible because it the if if we if they're Ironically, their forced imposition of Darwinism upon us, the Darwinian logic, be it social or, or scientific, is to actually create the strongest form of ourselves. Because the survivor, the very nature of our survival means that it isn't that we're just damaged, we're wounded, but wounds heal and they leave scars. And scar tissue is tougher than, than regular tissue. And I'm proud of the scars that I have and I'm proud of my, the scars that my ancestors had to bear in the sense that every single one of them was a fuck you and a giant <laughs> finger in your face saying I'm still here and there's nothing you can fucking do about it and more importantly what I think is at the at the core of all of it which kind of goes back to this idea of the fire and the fury and this need, need for revenge is at the core of it what really creates and bothers the psyche of colonialism. And I know I'm, I'm kind of like objectifying it as if it's a person, but it is a, a nebulous psychology of its own. What really drives it crazy and, and the people that want to embrace this idea of a settler totality, you know, this idea of the good old days or whatever, those, what drives those people crazy is recalcitrant defiance. The fact that the I don't that we actually truly have the capacity on our end of things to not give a fuck, 
and and be like, and I've I've been I've been cut from that cloth that I may go down, but I'm taking you with me. You know, not everyone is cut from that cloth. And and to be to be honest, I find those people inspirational because it's the last thing I want is more people like me. You know, but I, but but that being said, you know, we have this this grandiose notion that that on the one hand that this is our exclusive experience and some people probably listening to anything we're saying either don't relate or they're going to gravitate to that fucked up cliche of the the pitiful surviving indian you know like like we're something to be pitied or the dying race and whatever the fuck it is that's truly you know obnoxious and annoying and what they never realize is what we're experiencing is exactly what they're experiencing. They just haven't gotten that far into the into the pan yet. And a perfect example is 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 the, the these education institutions because they weren't institutions of education. They were in institutions of indoctrination and violence, as I said earlier. But what people don't look at on the timeline because of the normalization of the idea of education is when this was occurring and what was happening in the white world, quote unquote, the settler world. The settler world wasn't having mandatory schooling. They weren't being rounded up for not giving their kids to a boarding school. You know, those are things that actually emerged later after, you know, labor, labor uh, movement around children's rights and not having them in the workplace. And that shit that didn't even occur until the, until the early 20th century. And we're talking about our, our, our ancestors, our, the children and of our, of our, of our relatives being rounded up in mass and encaged 500, 400, 300, a hundred years prior to that. And massive lattice works of law and stuff created around us as if we are animals, because that's exactly how they thought of us. Having said that, where does all this structure of authority and discipline and all these other things that you send your every your, you know, your little kid into every day that may not be quite the same horror show? but it's still a horror show of its own, of a, of a more tamed variety. That's what you send your kids into. And they're not looking and seeing the connection between the two as if the two are totally like we're we are an isolated experience that would never happen to us type of thing. And it's like, no, it happens every day. I, I was, I went to, I never, I never was in a boarding school. I was in a regular school. Do you think it was a, a nonviolent experience? You'd be totally wrong. Yeah, I saw some people posting who were just, like, um, real standing hard for academia, um, kind of, like, indigenous people pushing back on the critique that um, all of education is, like, um, inherently violent, essentially. Um, And their, like, pushback on it was that, well, no, now school is, like, voluntary. You know, you don't have to go to a university and and stuff like that and uh, um cuz you could go to a charter school makes, instead <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me grateful to be here where we can like we don't have to you know dance around these subjects and we know for sure that any any school any church any colonial institution on these lands is unwanted and unneeded 
And if we're going to talk about, like, you know, this hashtag land back, then that means get your fucking churches, get your fucking schools, get all of your fucking colonial institutions the fuck out of here. And so burn the churches, burn the schools, burn the banks. <laughs> burn the police stations, no. But you mean, you mean, make, you mean make art? <laughs> make art. Learn you know no, he, he's absolutely more creative than I thought then, Remy. <laughs> so any uh anybody wanna offer some closing thoughts? Um Closing thoughts. Uh, weaponize your talents. Weaponize your privilege. Develop your skills. Um, I think it just goes beyond maybe physically creating something in terms of art. You got to sharpen the mind. You got to be able to express yourself in uh, the ways that we have access to now, whether that be digital or otherwise. So um, just keep your shit sharp. That's it. Everything Remy said and read my fucking war paint. For those of you who didn't see that, that was two middle fingers from Anthony. Um, I, w- I would offer this quote from Asada Shakur, which I think is always very, very incisive. Um, they said in their autobiography, the schools we go to are reflections of the society that created them. Nobody's going to give you the education you need to overthrow them. Nobody's going to teach you your true history, teach you your true heroes. If they know that, that knowledge will help set you free. And to me that like, you know, nobody's going to give you the education you need to overthrow them needs to be really understood by our people. And this is part of the reason that in the, um, the seventies and eighties is part of the, the the wave of the red power movement, the American Indian movement, women of all red nations and other folks recognize that we need to have our own schools. We need to teach our own people. We can't have the colonizers and their colonizer curriculum be teaching our people. Otherwise they're going to be colonized. They're going to, they're, they're going to think like the colonizer. They're going to, that's still the same assimilation process. So they started survival schools. So I highly recommend folks study the survival schools. They were, they were instituted, all throughout what we sort of call, you know, Turtle Island is a is a, a general term, pan-indigenous term, but they were all implemented throughout so-called Canada, throughout so-called U.S., and all the way down to um, the so-called Global South, um, as well as these survival schools uh, to ensure that there were traditional cultural teachings and that knowledge would continue and be carried forward. They were language-based um, through immersion. They were culturally rooted in ceremonial in some ways. And so I think DQ University was an interesting example of that. I know it has a complicated, you know, uh, existence at this point. Um, but I think there was a powerful movement at one point where folks were really invested in, in securing uh, indigenous education on our terms. Uh, and that's something that we can learn from, from um, our relatives in the black community <laughs> who, did seize on that and did create their own education systems um, as well. Um, and the other thing, the other sort of quote, I guess, is like just a, a little bit of a critique maybe on like Fred, Frederick Douglass's quote, like knowledge is power. 
and I can't remember who said this, but I, I read this somewhere and it, it stuck with me, but it actually was sort of a, an extension of that knowledge is power statement saying that information or knowledge is not power until it leads to mobilization. Um, and I think that that question of mobilization or question of actualization is really key and critical. And that's why, you know, to me, power is not a mistake. It's not a misunderstanding or a disagreement in terms of colonial occupation in this dominant social order that continues to attack our identities, our ways of being. Um, what is justice going to mean except for taking power away from the powerful and dismantling their institutions? And that's why this this assertion of indigenous knowledge and rage is power, I think, is key. You know, knowledge is power, yes, but indigenous knowledge and rage is power. So I think it's important to reflect and meditate, to to pray on that, to think about what that means, because we see these young um, young people who were stolen um, at these schools being reinterned into the ground in those ceremonies. Uh, we see that they are resting finally, that our ancestors are being brought home. These young ancestors are being brought home and their spirits can rest. But I don't think it's part, that story is not over when they're being brought back home. Our spirits should not rest because we are still facing the violence of this system. So we have to think about what our responsibilities in a continuation of that ceremony, in that healing, and in, in interpret what that means for us in our terms, I think. And, and especially what, what you said, you know, to make sure that it is accessible and not just an ableist assertion and make sure that it's not just something that's disconnected. Because, you know, I, I was raised really traditionally and I was connected very closely with those understandings, but not a lot of people have access to that too. So I understand that. But I think that we, we sit with the land and the land still teaches us. Our deities, our spirits are still with us. Our ancestors are with us. We can't neglect that. We can't forget that. That's part of that power. Let's sit with that and understand how we can connect with that knowledge and that rage and build and grow and fight fucking for this beautiful future that is still sitting right here with us. And so to me, that's, that's really what I look forward to and what's inspiring about this discussion that has been opened up. It's painful. It's painful, but we have to go through that as part of the healing process. Yeah. I think in closing, like a lot of, um, connecting to, for me, connecting to power also means like connecting to, children um and i i think that might be like you know kind of maybe an out there idea maybe for some people and connecting to power and and healing and but connecting to my three little indigenous uh god daughters has been like so incredibly healing for me um to just knowing that there's there's children who out there who need so much love and attention um and we live in a like society where it's not really like normal, I guess, anymore to, you know, be able to go up to a baby or a child and just pick them up and squeeze them, uh, which I wish we were because I would do that to everyone. I would just make that my job to just go around and, and do that. So I think it's like just a really, um, really reinforced for me this time um, and these stories coming out that 
um, I just, I, you know, want like to see a, a future where we are more connected to um, children and, and just loving children so hard. And so um, if people have those opportunities to do so and, and want to and would find that, that healing, I could just see like um, the potential of our future being so much strong, stronger when we have, you know, um, um, a community of children who are um, raised in love and raised in that power and raised in that rage um, that to really like resist all of the, the violence and, and damage and, and genocide um, that stem from, you know, the, the schools and our education system. So I think that that's kind of what I, where I'm at right now, my final thoughts. I want to take a moment to talk about a case relevant to the current topic, um, the case of Frank Perez of the Crow Nation. Um, Frank Perez was arrested on July 5th, 2021, on the charge of hate crimes for painting red handprints outside a Catholic church in Merced in an attempt to bring awareness and to honor the more than 4,000 bodies of indigenous children that have recently been discovered. Frank is not only a supporter of justice for these children, he is also native and a registered member of the Crow tribe located in Montana. Frank's own family and grandparents, his mother and their siblings were all forced to attend similar schools here in the U.S., one of them being the Carlisle Indian School. Those family members were subjected to physical, emotional, and other forms of abuse. The school's goal was to assimilate and destroy the indigenous culture and language. They're currently raising funds related to his legal fees um, and specifically his bail. Um, you can contribute to his bail fund at gofundme.com backslash F backslash F-R-E-E dash F-R-A-N-K dash P-E. R-E-Z. I'd also like to bring your attention to support the Indigenous Peoples Day 5, who are a crew of all Indigenous women and two-spirit folks that are facing felony charges in relation to the toppling of a statue of Junipero Cerro at Mission San Rafael in so-called California. Uh, Junipero Cerro, of course, was part of the Spanish missions that were sort of a predecessor or archetype for the boarding school forced assimilation tactics. And so um, he was canonized by as a saint by the Pope uh, recently, some years ago, and there was a strong uprising to oppose that. So these folks took direct action, and now they're facing these charges and they need support. And you can check out ip5solidarity.org for more information about their case and to support them. But we'd also like to encourage, if anybody knows of any other cases that aren't getting uh, a lot of attention or some cases that uh, relate to these issues of vengeance against uh, colonial symbols or institutions, and you'd like us to use our platform to broadcast them either here on social media, please message us at uh, the Proton Mail address, as well as you can direct messages through our social media, and we'll try to get on that and respond. So um, just a big shout out to all those who are taking direct action and facing severe state repression um, in the midst of this ongoing struggle. 
You can find this broadcast on any of the usual podcast platforms or at www.indigenousaction.org backslash podcast. Email us pics of burning cop cars, burning churches, burning forts, or any questions or topics you'd like to hear us go claws out on at iainfo at protonmail.com. 